welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlap. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a review of the 2022 elections. We then get an update on peace negotiations for the Ukraine. Later on, we hear about a new exhibit at New York Folklore in Schenectady featuring 30 art quilts by Beth Taylor. And then we hear a segment about the upcoming Niami Conference on Mental Health, Wellness, and Recovery. And we finish up with a, a new segment, Vox Pop from the polls, hearing from people about how they wish they were treated differently. But first, headlines. Albany City Schools has put out a notice about monkeypox symptoms and prevention Tuesday after someone associated with the district's Sheridan Preparatory Academy community exhibited potential signs of the rare disease. Unemployment in the construction industry in New York fell to 4.3% from 6% a year ago. Uh, that was the 11th largest percentage increase in the United States put New York ahead of the national average for fallen unemployment in the construction industry over the last year. Average gasoline prices in Albany have risen 7.6 cents per gallon in the last week, averaging $3.94 per gallon today. Prices in Albany are 32.1 cents per gallon higher than a month ago, and stand 42.5 cents per gallon higher than a year ago. American basketball pay player Brittany Grenier uh, jailed in Russia in what the U.S. calls a wrongful detention is being moved to a penal colony. She was sentenced to nine years in prison for having vape canisters with cannabis oil in her luggage. The city of Troy has announced they will be accepting bids for the purchase of available city-owned foreclosed properties. Bids will be accepted from November 7th and ending on December 9th. That's it for headlines. Up first, Tuesday was Election Day nationwide. In New York, Democrat Kathy Hochul, who became governor after the resignation of Andrew Cuomo, was elected to her first full term but by a narrow margin of only 5% against Republican Lee Zeldin. The $4.2 billion environmental bond act won big with, a, with two-thirds of the votes. Nationally, the expected so-called red wave for the GOP did not occur, but many congressional races still have not been decided. However, it seems likely that the Republicans will win a slight majority of the House, while control of the U.S. Senate will likely once again be decided in a runoff election in Georgia, as both major party Senate candidates felt just short of the required majority. We are going to spend the next 10 minutes diving a little deeper into the election results, starting here in the Capitol District and statewide. So, Mark, what happened in the race for a full term in District 2 in the city of Troy? Well, thank you, Sally. And I just want to point out we are talking uh, Wednesday night and with the election results, things uh, continue to change as they finish counting all the votes. 
Uh, but in Troy, um, Steve Figueroa uh, won in uh, District 2, uh, went in with a 60 to 40 percent margin over Ryan uh, Bronson. And that keeps the uh, four to three uh, majority for the Democrats uh, in the Troy City Council. Uh, listeners probably remember that the District 2 council seat was vacated uh, following the resignation of uh, Kimberly Ash McPherson, who pled guilty to identity theft in connection with some cast and absentee ballots. Um, I will point out that uh, new elections for the whole city um, will be taking place next year, and now we'll have new election uh, districts for this for the six districts, and the uh, both the mayor and the city council president uh, will be up um, for vote as well as the uh, six city council um, positions. What are some of the interesting results for state and federal offices locally? Well, let's start with. Um, state senate one of the most competitive races um both expected and reality was in for the uh please the 43rd district which includes i believe rensselaer county and then parts of rensselaer county parts of washington county and parts of saratoga county uh jake ashby who was a republican state assembly member had moved up uh and was running uh for the senate it was a district where the, the Democrats certainly had a chance on the new boundary lines, uh, but uh, Jake Ashby was elected with about 53% of the vote. Uh, Andrea Smith, who had run a pretty close race, one percentage point, uh, was it two, three years ago for the uh, county executive position, um, you know, finished um, second. Um, one of the other ones, uh, Senator Zedesco, uh, and remember, all these new were new lines because of the new census tracts. But uh, Jim Tedesco, longtime um, first assembly member, city council member, and now senator, uh, won with about 57% of the vote. Uh, so that was quite uh, uh, quite a good showing. For most of the night, he actually was um, trailing Michelle uh, Ostrelich, who was Republic, I'm sorry, was a, a county legislator in Schenectady and had been a target of some of anti-Semitic uh, tweets, attacks that had gotten a lot of uh, media attention, but Tedesco eventually pulled it out. Uh, longtime Senator Neil Breslin, mainly Albany County, a couple other places, uh, won, but closer than sort of expected, um, but he ended up pulling 55% uh, of the vote and um, a little bit south of us, but uh, uh, Senator Michelle Henchy, daughter of uh, Maurice Henchy, um, won pretty close to election, 52% of the vote, but she had been expected um, to be have a sort of a tough um, race. Um, one of the people that the Democrats really thought was in trouble was Assemblymember Phil Steck uh, over in Colony, um, but he actually won pretty handily, got about 57% of the vote with about... Um, that's the 110th Assembly District. Certainly the big winner in the Capital District, 109th District, I believe, mainly Albany, uh, was Pat Fahey, who pulled over 70% uh, of the vote. Um, but basically no upsets in the Capital District for Assembly. D.D. Harrett, uh, Mary Beth Walsh, uh, one Republican in the uh, area in the Assembly. Uh, she won with 60% uh, of the vote. 
Uh, Carrie Warner, Democrat, uh, a little bit to the north of us, 113th district, won with um, you know 53% of the vote. Um, James Scoof is a little bit south of us for state senator, pretty progressive on environmental issues. He was losing most of the night, but now it looks like he has managed to to pull it out. On the uh, congressional races, no particular upsets in the main capital district ones, though uh, Tonko pulled a lot less of the vote than one had anticipated. He ended up with Paul Tonko, um, Albany, Schenectady, with about 55% of the vote and a rerun against um, Liz Joy. Uh, Elaine, I'm sorry, Elise Stefanik up there in the North Country um, pulled a pretty easy vote uh, with about 59% against uh, Matt uh, Castelli. Now, just south of us, uh, mainly some parts of Columbia County, Hudson Valley, uh, that was uh, that was a hotly contested, really important nationally. And the two incumbent county executives running for Congress both managed to win in r- relatively close races. Mark Malinaro, first elected, I think, in high school uh, down in Tivoli, um, was elected to Congress. With 51 percent of the vote, he had been the uh, county executive in uh, Dutchess County. And then Pat Ryan, who actually defeated Malonaro in the special election to report, I'm sorry, to replace uh, Antonio Delgado when he became lieutenant governor. It appears he has won. He has about uh, well, 50.4% of the votes. Pat Ryan, also county uh, executive and actually a congressman since he won the special runoff against uh, I think it's Colin Scheider, um, who is an incumbent um, state uh, assembly person. So what was the overall impact of the congressional race in New York? Well, I mean, the reality is that the New York state may be what cost the Democrats nationally um, control of the House. And this was quite startling, probably because the Democrats had really sort of really took advantage of a new constitutional amendment and really gerrymandered the districts to ensure overwhelmingly that the Democrats were going to win most of them. And the courts didn't like that. So they threw out the congressional districts and wrote district lines that were much more, uh, say, nonpartisan focused. And so basically they lost the Delgado seat um, because he decided to run for a lieutenant governor, and he won last night, obviously, with, with Kathy Hochul. But they lost every seat uh, down to Long Island. That was four seats. Uh, and that was a pickup of two uh, for the Republicans. And then uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, um, down in the lower Hudson Valley, uh, lost in his reelection bid. I think it was his third term. The surprising thing was Sean Patrick Malone. He was actually one of the first openly gay people to get elected to to Congress. He was actually chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So he was responsible for organizing the entire national congressional races. And he managed to, it appears he he has lost, I think actually he's conceded. It was a close race. He lost about, um, you know, 1%. Um, so, and then the other seat that the lawsuit was one of the ones you mentioned down there in Long Island was Tom Swazi, who had resigned in order to run 
in the Democratic primary for governor, and he finished a very distant third. So you had two Democrats, Swazi and Delgado, giving up their seats for two other seats. And that and the losses in Long Island may be what's going to cost the Democrats the control of the um, House at, at the federal level. So we've been talking a lot locally, but what are some of the big picture um, ideas from election night? Well, one big thing is that uh, if, if you're a Democratic politician, you need to be taking out every young person you know for dinner and treat them really well, because it was the young people who saved the Democrats uh, nationally last night. Um, voters under the age of 30 provided a 22% margin uh, in their votes in favor of the uh, Democrats versus Republicans. People between 30 and 44 only gave a 2% margin to Democrats. And if you were over 45, on average, um, 12 to 14% voted for the Republicans. Now, as a climate activist, I will say since uh, exit polls, uh, well, uh, will show that many young people were motivated by climate. They'd like to think it's some possibility they'll have some future by avoiding climate collapse. You would think that the Democrats would pay a whole lot more attention to climate than they have been. And in fact, in the exit polls, you know, going into the polls, we knew that Democrats in New York very heavily, uh, number two item on their list of priorities was climate. But it actually turned out that overall for all voters in New York, uh, climate was by the second most important issue to them. So as climate is rising in the polls, one would think that the Democrats might begin to pay a little bit more attention to that issue. One, um, I guess, sad note a little bit for the climate movement was that Assemblymember Engelbright down there in Suffolk County around uh, Stony Brook, longtime chair of the Assembly Environmental Committee, uh, lost. I think about uh, by a thousand votes. And that means that both chair positions in the um, environmental committees, both in the Senate and the Assembly are up. And to conclude, um, this remains a very divided country. Um, weirdly, the Democrats seem more interested in having Trump run for president than the GOP, because Trump is a very polarizing figure. It was a not a good night. It was a bad night for Trump. It wasn't such a bad night for President Biden. Thank you for that, Mark. Up next for our peace bucket, we talk with Joe Gerson about the need to negotiate a peace settlement in the Ukraine, as well as a recent statement in support of Russian peace activists. For our peace bucket, we're joined by Joe Gerson, who is the president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. I noticed that Joe and the campaign had recently been involved in a statement, letter of support with uh, solidarity for people in Russia who were uh, expressing opposition to the invasion, the war with uh, Ukraine. Joe, when you talk a little bit about statement and why groups felt it was important to issue it. So so several of us who were veterans of the Vietnam era peace movement, uh, but also uh, peace efforts uh, during the Afghan and, and Iraq wars, I mean, we, some, many of us were jailed. We, we, you know, we, we suffered. 
uh, uh, even as we as we work for peace. And so we could easily identify uh, with the Russians who have been opposing the war, either those who have remained inside Russia uh, at, at considerable risk, some of whom we're in touch with, and you know as many as five hundred thousand who have uh, fled the country. Uh, rather than be conscripted in, in places such as Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, tough places. So we wanted to express our solidarity with them, but also call for negotiations because the war has to end uh, if the killing is to stop and if we're to have something approaching a just peace. Now, I've seen a couple of headlines recently that President Biden may actually, you know, be, uh, you know, trying to persuade the uh, Ukraines that perhaps this is a time to, to start some negotiations? How, how, where is the Biden administration on the issue of negotiations? Well, I think it's playing a um, subtle game. Uh, the commitment is clearly to weaken Russia uh, and to provide as, as much support as it can to, to Ukraine. At the same time, it's aware uh, that uh, uncritical support for the war is weakening, uh, that especially in Europe, it's going to be a tough winter with lack of energy and heat. And so I think uh, he and, and now Zelensky are in the process of signaling at least a degree of openness to negotiations, which they both essentially refused. Uh, and much, I think, is going to depend on the outcome of what we're seeing as, as preparations for a really huge and potentially decisive battle in Kyrgyzstan uh, in, in southern Ukraine. Now, there was a fair amount of media coverage early on after the invasion where there was a significant amount of public uh, opposition in, in Russia to to the invasion. And that opposition was quickly trampled down, I guess. Um, where is the sort of peace movement uh, in Russia at this point? How can they operate within the confines of that society? It's extremely difficult. Uh, with with a, a friend of mine who's a physicist in St. Petersburg, uh, we he, he was willing to translate our statement and, and distribute it. Uh, but you know the reality is that people are facing serious jail terms. Uh, there was a recent frontline television uh, documentary. Uh, which focused on a number of journalists who were opposed to the war. Uh, and in the end, in the last uh, what six weeks, almost everyone featured in the film has had to flee. You know, Russia is, is a, to say it's authoritarian is probably an understatement. Uh, Putin has used the war to really clamp down uh, on, on resistance. I mean, early on, uh, the first day of the war, uh, a million Russians signed a statement uh, condemning the war and calling for those who had uh, initiated it to be tried as, as uh, war criminals. Well, they've, they've had to kind of duck for cover now. You know, I, I also saw a headline this morning from Climate News um, related to some energy company making some deals with Russia. But the point that they were making was that apparently countries out, sort of outside of the United States and Europe really sort of view this whole situation differently, particularly countries, say, from Asia and Africa, you know, what are people's, you know, different perspectives about uh, the invasion, um, you know, from these different countries? So I think there's at least two elements here. One, a number of countries in the global south are looking at something like, you know, American hypocrisy. I mean, here in the United States, you know, as Biden you know, calls for enforcing the rules-based order, you know, we easily forget the invasions of Afghanistan uh, and, um, and Iraq. 
and the work the United States has done to um, really overthrow governments. Uh, so the rest of the world is aware of this, and it makes makes many of them hesitant to kind of fully support the United States. The other is that countries pursue what they governments pursue what they perceive to be their interests. Uh, so India, for example, has been uh, enjoying the the cheap oil uh, from from Russia. Uh, it also is uh, heavily dependent on uh, Russian uh, parts and weapons for its military. So it's it's attempted to kind of play a, a neutral role in all this. Interestingly, um, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of China uh, for its support of of of, uh, of Putin and the Russian invasion. But the reality is that uh, China has been much more cautious uh, than we can read in, in the U.S. press, not wanting to fully alienate the United States or its European trading partners. So, so back to the issue of um, negotiations and and this statement. What can be done, um, you know, with the Biden administration and the Congress at this point? I actually understand there were some Congress people had initially drafted, you know, a letter calling for negotiations, but then sort of backed away from it. Right. So I was involved on the margins with a, a, a letter signed by a number of members of Congress initiated by Congresswoman Jayapal uh, from the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, that letter uh, praised the Biden administration for its support uh, of, of Ukraine, including the massive transfer of weapons. Uh, but it also called for um, making uh, pressing for negotiations a, a priority. Uh, it was begun in the summer. Uh, and it grew to get 30, 30 signatures, what, 10 days ago or so. Um, some members of since then, I mean, the, the, the nature of the war has changed. The Ukrainians have been a bit more on the offensive of late. And I think some of the members of Congress who had not been kept apprised of the uh, plans for releasing it uh, felt that they were, were caught out. Uh, Nancy Pelosi apparently made very, very heavy threats against those who had signed it. Uh, and so Jayapal, in a rather humiliating uh, process, uh, withdrew the letter. Interestingly, I spoke with at least one congressional staffer who worked for one of the, the members of, of Congress who, who who held on to his commitment for the, the call for, for negotiations, um, uh, saying that uh, Biden actually hadn't opposed the letter, uh, that the opposition actually came more from um, uh, from from uh, Pelosi and some members of Congress who were concerned uh, that their signatures being released just before the congressional elections uh, might negatively impact them. Well, since the congressional elections took place on, on November 8th, and maybe a while before we determine whether the Republicans take control of one house or even uh, both houses, now that the elections are, are passed at us, will that in any way impact upon you know, what the United States is doing in terms of continuing to support and supply weapons to the Ukraine? So what we're expecting is that um, uh, Republicans, especially if they win control of the House, uh, will at least reduce uh, the financial support for uh, weaponry and other support for, for Ukraine. Uh, how much so, we don't know. Uh, and so there's discussions about the possibility of the Biden administration and Democrats in the lame duck session that's coming up uh, to pass a, a gargantuan um, uh, allocation for, for weapons and support to Ukraine, maybe as much as $50 billion. So so we'll have to see how that, that plays out. Um, you know, there may be more, you know, the Battle of Kyrgyzstan will be taking place soon. We'll be moving into winter. 
Uh, and I think the the changes here and there will open the way for greater pressure toward a negotiated settlement. But there's no guarantees. And if we don't press, it may not happen. So in the last 40 seconds or so, what can or should the peace movement be doing right now with respect to the Ukraine situation? I think needs to, in, in any way it can, from letters to the editor to sitting in members of Congress's office, uh, calling for the United States to back a ceasefire uh, and, and negotiations. One thing that's being discussed in Europe is the possibility of a Christmas truce, uh, sort of modeled after the World War I Christmas truce, and that could provide a, a foundation uh, for extending a ceasefire uh, and creating the, the, the environment for negotiations. Get a website. Uh, yes, cpdcs.org. That's cpdcs, as in Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, .org. And we've been talking with uh, Joe Gerson, the president of the campaign, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I'll mention, uh, just as we uh, went on air, uh, the Russians announced that they actually were pulling out of, of Gerson City uh, rather than attacking it. Um, the Ukrainians didn't exactly buy that. Um, so we will see. But this has definitely become, you know, the killing fields where the, the deaths on both sides are just enormous and needs to end. But for those of you just tuning in, and even for those of you who've been listening for a while, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sally Becker. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOG LP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOS LP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOA LP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a co-worker, a relative. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. A new exhibit at New York Folklore in Schenectady features 30 art quilts by Beth Taylor. Beth talks to Bria Barthel about her love for quilting and her family's creative tradition in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I am at the wonderful gallery of the New York Folklore on J Street in Schenectady, talking with an artist who has just hung her quilting exhibit. Beth Taylor, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And we are surrounded by an amazing variety of incredible quilts. Tell us a little bit about your quilts and your quilting process. Um, I started quilting about 10 years ago. I had not really sewn, um, and I started because of encouragement of people around me. Uh, a couple, I, I'd never sewn or quilted, partly because I... Um, I wasn't. I knew that I wasn't the kind of quilter that would be able to line points up and and uh, but I uh, and make things perfectly even. But I'd always loved fabric, and a friend of mine was watching me one time set a table because I set a table with a lot of color, and uh, I take 
setting the table kind of seriously with fabric. And this friend said, have you ever thought about quilting? And I said, well, I don't think I could do quilting because I don't think I could line everything up. And she said, well, you know, you could just do it your own way if you wanted to and make up your own patterns. Now, when she says make up her own patterns, we are surrounded by landscapes, by forests, by uh, wonderful backgrounds with quotes on them. And they're all in beautiful, curvaceous, billions of pieces of fabric. <laughs> um, I, I, when I, once I started, I just uh, started with putting things together that I, I like together. And um, I, I don't have a plan, usually, when I'm starting. Sometimes I do a lot of, uh, a lot of commissions, and in that case, I have a framework that a person is looking for something in a color palette or they're looking for something to meet a certain purpose. And so in that case, I have a framework, but um, and I usually start with a color palette. And I like to work in cotton and silk. And um, so uh, I, I just start. And sometimes it's a matter of responding to what the colors and the fabric is doing. It's kind of a response process, I would have to say. How long ago did you start quilting? I think it was about 10 years ago when I started doing it. And did you look to anybody for inspiration, or did you research it at all, or did you just start playing with fabric? I just started playing with fabric. That's what I did. Uh, and I, uh, the first thing I did was start and put... Uh, words and prayers on fabric and that was from another person who was encouraging me because I was I'm a singer and I was singing a kind of service that some people know about it's called Tizay was singing these services and some of the words in these services are so beautiful and I'm I was singing it with a baritone and the baritone and I we just kind of are in sync and he liked the same words and prayers and that I did, and so I one day I made him one. I just was making a little piece of fabric thing, and and I put the words. At that time, I just printed the words on cardstock, and I printed it and gave it to him. And he was in charge of a, a gallery for a religious organization, and he said, oh, can you make more of these? And that's how I started uh, doing it, really, the, the two people who encouraged me. Uh, and, I, and I just started working and doing it. And as I look around, I don't see much that's religiously oriented, but lots of things that are spirit-oriented. Uh, like, I love red so much, I almost want to paint everything red, is a quote from Alexander Calder on this amazing long uh, piece with lots of what you might guess, red fabric. Uh, do you have any inspiration for your quilts or just things that you pick up along the way? I, I'm interested in certain things. I'm interested in, um, in things that are really positive, and I'm also interested in things that kind of honor a lot of different kinds of people, and I'm also very interested in different faiths. And so I would have to say the words that I choose are usually are usually closer to, uh, there are things that are more about reconciliation and peace, because I'm very interested in the divide in this country. And uh, so I guess 
I like to do things that are positive and that don't exclude people and that also invite people to know that sometimes we have things in common, even though we may think differently. And I think, I think uh, things like uh, prayer and even landscapes and nature, there are things that, that really many, many people who think very differently uh, agree on. Given the recent election, this is certainly a time where you have lots of inspiration for thinking about divides and the need for bringing people together. Now, I know that New York folklore tries to preserve cultural heritages in part. Do you see your work coming from or relating to quilting hist- history? I I see my work coming out of uh, a tradition of the Blue, the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm a native uh, North Carolinian and am a, a transplant to New York, and I uh, I have been in the mountains my whole life, and everything my parents talked to me, they, they always noticed the sky, and the beauty of the world was always something from a little child, when I was a little child that I remember. Uh, so I guess I'm, um, I know stories about my great-grandmother, and I know she quilted, and, but the tradition I come out of is certainly a creative tradition that appreciated nature and respected the world that we live in, um, and that people are different, rural people and urban people, that we have a lot in common, but that people, so I guess the tradition I do come out of is, is, is one of, 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 of the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And listeners, I'm sorry you can't, that this is audio, not video, because uh, Beth is wearing incredible bright purple overalls with a a pink hat with Ruth Bader Ginsburg image needle pointed in it. Did you do that image? No, I didn't. I just, uh, someone who knew me uh, gave it to me because I knew I would like it. So besides that, she's got wonderful floral shoes in different colors and bright green picture frames and uh, FDR socks. So her uh, entire presentation is as colorful and eclectic as her quilts. Now, I see there's about 30 quilts or so here, ranging in size from maybe 6 feet by 2 feet to smaller pieces that are maybe 2 by 2 feet. Are these your main collection, or do you, was it hard to pick what you would go, put in the show? Um, this is a lot of the ones that I have here are really ones that I made. Most of them are ones I've made in the pandemic. Some of them are things that uh, the way I... I often, a piece often evolves for me, especially a big piece. Like I can make a landscape or make the flowers piece. And uh, when I make it, um, I may look at it for a year or two. And then I may say, oh, I don't like that part of it. Or I'd like to add this and that. And so some pieces evolve. And I'd say that one and the bigger landscapes are ones I've been working on for a while. But uh Okay, so that one is one of the larger pieces here. It's about two feet across by six feet tall with sort of trees in the background, but hundreds of different color and shape flowers. And I thought it was printed fabric 
and indeed every single flower is one that Beth cut out and adhered to the background. So it's an incredible piece. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, is this your first time exhibiting? And if not, is it your first time exhibiting at New York Folklore? It's my first time exhibiting at New York Folklore. Uh, I happened on to New York Folklore when I first moved here in the pandemic and came in and got to know uh, Laurie and some folks here and appreciated, I appreciate the wood pieces that are here and just the metal pieces and there's been a, there've been painters here and I'm, I've found the, uh, you know, the, the artists that they have and the festival that they have to be something that I can just really connect with. So listeners, you gotta come in. New York Folklore is on J Street, right across from the Whistling Kettle and down a few buildings from the Open Door Bookstore. It is absolutely worth a visit. Amazing variety of media, all of it handcrafted here in New York. There's pasanki and baskets and wood and all sorts of things. The website for New York Folklore is www.nyfolklore.com folklore.org. So Beth, thank you for your work and thank you for talking with me today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you very much. So good to be here. So I visited the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains last year, certainly quite uh, beautiful. Um, that was uh, Rhea Barthel uh, talking with uh, Beth Taylor about her upcoming exhibit at New York Folklore in Schenectady about uh, quilts. The opening reception will be Thursday, um, November 10th from 4 to 6 p.m. at 129 J Street. In this next segment, NAMI New York State gives us some tips on normalizing conversations around suicide. And they also tell us about their upcoming conference. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Matthew Shapiro and Amanda McDowell. It's been a while since we've had you on our show. NAMI is doing such incredible work. September was Suicide Awareness Month. This is a year-round issue. So what were some of the activities that you were doing in September, and how do we continue to keep the awareness out there? Well, you made the most important point. I mean, again, we don't want to limit the conversations around suicide and the importance of suicide prevention to one month. It's obviously a 365-day-a-year job. Um, you know, what we did uh, in, in September as NAMI New York State, again, we always want to normalize the conversation on suicide and suicide prevention. I think it's a, a conversation people are very reluctant to engage in, especially when dealing with younger people or, or, or kids or students that they feel like they're going to enter the conversation in a wrong way or inappropriately or maybe put ideas in people's heads. And we know that's not true. I mean, it's a lot like the way we talk about sex education. I think people have that notion. If we talk about sex education, it's going to encourage people to have sex. Well, we know that's not the case. They're doing it anyway. And the same thing with suicidality. Unfortunately, there are people that struggle with this pain that they think that suicide is the only way out. Whether we talk about it or not, that's still going to be happening. So we really have to take it upon ourselves to be uh, the best friends, neighbors, and family members possible and support people who might be struggling, especially with all the mental health challenges that people have been facing over the last couple of years. I think you're right in that there's a lot of fear in how to react. If somebody does 
find out that the loved one, somebody that they know, is thinking about suicide, what is a reaction that you could suggest? Yeah, no, that's such a great question, such an important question. And and the most important thing I can say is you never take any talk of suicide or or mention of suicide lightly or or take it as someone is just uh, faking it or something. Every mention of suicide has to be taken seriously. Um, You know, yeah, let that person know that they're loved and they're supported and you're willing to work with them, get them help. Um, You know, NAMI has programs like Family to Family that that educates family members on how to care for someone who has a serious mental illness, especially someone who could be suicidal. Um, You know, our colleagues at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention have many programs too to help both family members who've maybe experienced a, a, a loss via suicide, people who have a loved one who is thinking about suicide, or for the individual themselves. So the most important thing is to let that person, you know, take the threat seriously, let that person know that you're concerned about them and you love them, and that you're going to work with them to get them help, that they're not in this alone, and they're not, you know, it may be, you know, someone like Amanda or I, or you might not understand the pain they're experiencing, but we're here to support them and, and get them through this very difficult challenge that they're experiencing. Thank you for that, Matthew. And another thing that NAMI's working on, there's a really exciting conference coming up, education conference, empowering each other to achieve wellness and recovery. What exactly is going to be delved into at this conference? All right. We're very excited about this year's conference. It's the first time in a couple of years that we'll be doing it in person at the Albany Marriott on Wolf Road. And uh, yeah, we have such an exciting agenda. Uh, Two of the highlights that uh, I'm just so excited about, we have uh, Dr. Ken Duckworth, who's the medical director of NAMI, but he's also the author of the new book, You Are Not Alone, which features both individuals and family members who have experienced mental illness and, and are facing this and, and you know navigating the road to recovery. So he profiles these stories and lets people know they're not alone. And we'll have not just Dr. Duckworth, but uh, two of the people that are featured in the book as well. So we're very excited about that. And then on Saturday morning, we have Dr. Tom Insel, who's the former director of the National uh, Institute of Mental Health, who just wrote an incredible new book, Healing Our Road from Mental Illness to Mental Wellness, where really he argues how we need to make a social justice movement around mental health and that, you know, the consequences that have happened from not having enough mental health services really are social justice issues. When we see overrepresentation of people in jails and prisons, the homeless numbers, the suicide numbers. Obviously, that's something that's very concerning, and those are social justice issues. So to look at um, on that perspective is so helpful. Um, you know, speaking of suicide, we have a lot of uh, sessions on suicide prevention, our, our zero suicide focus, including our uh, 2022 Research Award winner, Dr. Matthew Hopman from the Nathan Klein Institute, who all of his research is on impulse control and suicidality. So we're really excited about that. And I'm going to end it off to Amanda because we have our Off the Mask event, too, that we're going to be talking about. And, and uh, as part of the event, we are going to be giving our Storyteller Award to uh, Joe Mealy and his family, who's a, a family here in Troy who lost their son to suicide. And every year they do uh, the Dustin Mealy Memorial Concert at Revolution Hall and done such an incredible job in the capital region of raising awareness and 
uh, both mental health and suicide. So we're very excited to honor them and, and again, show the importance of discussing suicide awareness. And Amanda, did you want to talk about other elements of Off the Mask? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're really excited about this entire weekend, um, November 11th and 12th. Um, uh, and I'll, it's all about connection for us. Um, it's it's a homecoming. We get to meet in person again, you know, for the first time since the pandemic. And with the conference, um, we get folks um, from all across the state, mental health professionals, peers, our affiliates. Um, and as well, uh, we have our uh, yearly fundraising gala, but it's it's more than a, a fundraiser. It's uh it's called Off the Mask, um, and the centerpiece is a fashion show where uh, we have about 25 models with a strong connection to mental health that they they walk the runway, um, initially wearing masquerade masks, and then they uh, take them off, and that is just a metaphor for um, the stigma that we all face with mental health that we're often forced to mask our mental health and not be able to have those conversations. Um, we also have a silent auction, an art show, a dinner. Um, and one thing that's really important to us um, is um, to share stories and to talk about just the diversity of experience. And I think especially this year, we've got a very diverse um, group of models, just and it cuts across like all spectrums. So we've got Across age, we've got younger folks and older folks. We've got um, people of color. We've got people um, from the queer community, um, folks from, from all across the state, you know, people that are mental health professionals, people that have mental illness themselves, people that have loved ones with mental illness. And it's a celebration, really, and a coming together to really connect, talk about our stories, share our victories, share our challenges. And we would love to have you all there. <laughs> Listen, people can find out more information about the event by visiting our website, www.namiNYS.org and then forward slash off the mask. And, and NAMI uh, right. is spelled N-A-M-I. Correct. Thank yeah. you. So before we started recording, I'd ask about the masking and you told me that it actually began before COVID. And so the, it's a masquerade mask, which is Correct. a little bit different, Correct. really focusing on taking away stigma. And so in our last minute, what else should we know about the work that you're doing at the moment? Well, I, I think what's most important for people to know about NAMI is that Again, there are not enough mental health programs to go around or, or services to go around, and we're really a safety net. Everything that we offer, all of our education programs, all of our support programs are offered at no cost to members of the public. Um, so we were able to provide mental health education support absolutely free from people with lived experience, whether they're people like uh, Amanda or I who have lived with a mental health issue, or Amanda and I both also are caregivers for people who live with a mental illness. So again, you're going to learn from people with lived experience, people who have walked the walk and, and know what it means to be in that position that you're in now. And just that you know that support's out there and that NAMI's out there with help, hope, and healing. Mm, thank you so much. Community is, is and resources are such an important part of moving forward. And Amanda and Matthew, it's been a pleasure to have you on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having thank us you so back. Much.
So that was uh, Matt Shapiro and Amanda uh, McDowell of, of, of NAMI. Uh, actually, uh, Matt was one of my staff people when I was temporarily the head of uh, Citizens Environmental Co Coalition. Uh, NAMI New York State has an upcoming education conference empowering each other to achieve wellness and recovery. And that will be taking place from November 11th to 12th. For our last segment, Lavender took to the polls for a Vox Pop compilation of people and their thoughts on how they wish people treated them differently. This is part of Lavender's series called Dear World. Hello, my name is Lavender. I'm the founder of a nonprofit called Music for the World and a former intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Today, I present you with the first compilation of street interviews as part of a series that I call Dear World. These interviews were taken outside a polling location in upstate New York on the evening of November 8th, 2022. My only question is really, how do you wish uh, people would treat you differently? How do I wish people would treat me differently? Um, I think I, I hope that people would take the time to sit down and find out more about uh, me as a person. Mm -hmm. I wish that we'd sit down and find the time to figure out who we are as people more and then and then take it from there i appreciate that and yeah. would you mind sharing some demographic information if you're comfortable um i am african-american and i am my early 40s <laughs> race, early 40s race ethnicity age sex gender um disability i'm actually caribbean american I would, i'm caribbean american i'm in my early 40s and i'm female are you an immigrant? Yes. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. How do you wish people would treat you differently, just in general? Um, I mean, I think just kinder. You mm -hmm. know, just don't judge people right away. And that's really it. You know, just kind off the bat. Yeah, and no other specifics? No. Okay. Just and do you, do you mind sharing some demographic information, race, age, gender, sex, disability status? And... No, thank you. Okay. Just one simple question. How do you wish people would treat you differently? Or if you have a message to people, what would it be? Let's see, I guess uh, more tolerant of other people's uh, opinions. That would be a good start. More respectful. Okay. Anything right. else to add? No. Would you, would you mind sharing just any demographic information? Age, sex, gender, race, a disability status, etc. Oh, for me? For you, yes. Oh, I'm over 60, white male, married, okay. three, three kids. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm just wondering, how do you wish people would treat you differently just on a daily basis? Um, any specific experiences you um, want to highlight? No specific experiences, just with kindness all the time. Okay. And respect. Um, and if you would mind sharing um, any demographic information about yourself, sex, race, age, disability status, etc. Um, I'm a female, white, 36 years old, no disabilities. Okay. Thank you so much. How do you wish people would treat you differently just on, on a daily basis? Is there any anything you notice people treat you in a way that you wish um, wasn't the case? Not necessarily. I'm pretty good with people, you know what I mean? So how do you wish people would treat you differently? All the time. How, how like, specifically... Family, yeah. How specifically, like... Is there a specific way people treat you that you wish they might do a little differently? Well, I'm 
I'm joking about, about that, but I'm talking within family, yeah. Because people don't take accountability for their own stuff and responsibility. They try to put everything on the other person. Okay. You know? Okay. And just in general, do you have kind of just a message to people? Like, what do you want from the world, you know? What do you want from more people? Kindness, more kindness, more understanding, more uh, mercy and grace. And bring really. God back into the world. Yeah. Okay. Thank um, you. And would you mind sharing just some demographic information, sex, age, gender, race, sexuality, disability status, any anything you're open to sharing? <clears throat> uh, female. White. Male. <laughs> white. Um, well, I don't know. American Indian. Is that white? Yellow? A little bit. American Indian? Yeah. As in Native American? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And what is it called? What's our... I don't even know. What is our sex status? I don't even know what you would call it. Male. No, I know, but I'm saying we're not... Married. You, do you mean sexuality? Yeah. I wouldn't even know. Uh, straight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it. Straight. I guess. That's it. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I just want to know, how do you wish uh, people would treat you differently or how you wish uh, to see, you know, other people treated differently, or what you just want from the world. I would like to see people pretty much treated like the way they want to be treated. I think I'm pre- treated pretty fair, sometimes not so much, but I think I get, you know, when they're upset with me, it's not because they're upset with me, they're upset with maybe how they're being treated in the world, or something that I can't really control. Okay, and do you think... Um, your, how you present has anything to do with that? Oh, absolutely. If you present yourself in a positive way and treat people with respect, you get that back 90% of the time. And so do you feel that you do that, but you don't always get that in return? Uh, I always try to treat people with respect, starting it off. Sometimes if I don't get treated with respect, I might jump <laughs> and get a little angrier. But as long as I'm level-headed and calm, they tend to reciprocate every now and then it's like i'll try to be fair and they uh they're like i said they're angry at something else and they may take it out on me but Mm -hmm. for the most part i think i'm treated fair and people treat me fairly okay great thank you and would you mind sharing um race age gender anything about yourself 55 year old white male and uh uh sexuality disability status no disabilities and are you a heterosexual? A yes, ma'am. Native U.S. citizen. I am. Okay. Thank you so much. How do you wish people would treat you differently, and or if you just had a message to the world of what you want from the world, what would that be? Oh. Peace. Mind your business and respect <laughs> others. Yeah. There you respect. go. Respect. Peace. All everybody needs to respect each other. And you? No particularly. Yeah. Any anything else to add? Nope. And if you wouldn't mind sharing um, some demographic information about yourself, if you're comfortable, race, gender, disability status, sexuality, age. Oh, male, 52, white. 64 years old. Asian. Are you you immigrants? Yes. Yes. We are citizen already. Okay. And um, do you feel that that impacts how people treat you? Yes. Yes. You could, you could feel it, and you could show it to you too. Yeah. So, what would you, what do you want them to do differently? Just treat others the same. We yeah, are all breathing the same. What color? Yeah. What race? What the, what the um, sex you are? Gender. gender? It's just I just want 
equality for everybody treat people the same way because we are breathing the same air we're eating the same food I don't care who you are okay. just treat fairly people no no racism nothing of those yeah, but despite it's 2022 you could still yes. feel it that right these people feel. still see it in your color despite your achievements despite but your education what color you are yeah we should respect each other it's respect is. and this is just the same uh, there's no video right no just, just audio yeah just oh, same treat people yeah. the same way I just want to know, how do you wish people would treat you differently, um, especially based on how you present, and um, what do you want from the world? I know it's a pretty open-ended question. I can answer that, but you may not like the answer. That's fine. I want, I want all, okay. all opinions, no matter. I'd like people to become smarter. <laughs> okay, could you be more specific? What, like how, how do you envision that happening? I don't know, but I deal with a lot of stupid people. <laughs> And that would make me feel much better if people were smarter. Well, or better informed. Better informed. Better. So, seeking uh, factual information, perhaps, or getting better education? Better education, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and do you, do you have any different perspective on how you would want to be treated differently? Well, women generally are, are I feel, kind of especially in certain industries, definitely looked down on, but uh, I guess that would be something that would, I would like to see changed, but okay. maybe not my generation. And in, in conjunction with that, would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself, such as sex, race, age, um, sexuality, um, disability status? 72. Um, uh, I'm female, uh, married. What else was the, what are the criteria? Uh, if you have any disabilities, no disabilities. Uh, sexuality. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> sexuality. She's binary. <laughs> no. No. Wait, you, your sexual or slash romantic attraction. Uh, male. So straight. Straight. Heterosexual. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, That's my wife. <laughs> yes. And uh, your. Your gender, race, age, any other information? My, gen my gender is male. I'm 71. Yes. I have to ask it because I'm not sure. <laughs> and uh, my sexuality is I'm, I'm straight. straight. Okay, thank you so much. And that was our, uh, I believe, first edition of a Lavender series called Dear World. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. I'm Mark Dunley. Our engineer tonight was the multi-talented Sina Basilahiki. We wish to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Lavender, Bria Barthel, Sina, and my co-host, Sally Becker, and myself. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.